Welcome to Ciao Bella, hosted by me, Erica Firpo, travel journalist based in Rome. Each episode of Ciao Bella, I sit down with Italy's creators, contemporary artists and artisans, designers, culinary experts, heritage brands, and innovative estites, and more who are defining and redefining 21st century Italy. Pull up a chair and join in. Hi, welcome back to Ciao Bella. Today I'm in Venice, and I'm not just in Venice, I'm at a very special place, the Peggy Guggenheim Collection. And with me today is Carol Vale, the director of the Peggy Guggenheim Collection, and the director for Italy of the Guggenheim, the Solomon R. Guggenheim Foundation. It's so great to be with you today. Thank Wait, you for joining me. It's wonderful that you're here. Thank you so much, and please call me Carol. I would love to call you Carol. I'm, I'm so happy. Um, a lot of my listeners know that my passion is art, and some might know, and some might not know, but a long time ago, I was an intern here at the Peggy Guggenheim Collection, which is uh, was perhaps one of my favorite times in my life. So thank you for bringing me back. Well, it's fantastic that you're here, and it's a wonderful opportunity, so I'm looking forward to our chat. Thank you. I'd love to talk about the history of why we're here because I think, you know, I think at this point it's kind of taken for granted. Peggy Guggenheim and Venice go hand in hand. But what brought Peggy here? Well, it's a long story and it's true that everyone now associates, well, many people associate Venice with the Peggy Guggenheim collection, but it wasn't always the case. Peggy first came to Venice um, as a young bride with her first husband, Lawrence Vale, who was a writer and artist. And I think she may have come here also when she was a little girl with her father, Benjamin, who died on the Titanic. And then when she came here, when she got married to Lawrence, um, I, she vowed that she would come back here and would make her home here. But that took a while. I mean, uh, she was born in New York City, as you know, and then she had a gallery in London and she started to collect, and she started to collect famously one painting a day as she writes an autobiography. Uh, then as an American Jew in Europe at the beginning of World War II, she has to leave New York. Um, but uh, in 1942, she opens her museum gallery, Artemis Century, which is a huge success. I mean, it's not just a huge success. I mean, it's like an international phenomenon because that, that was launching Jackson Pollock, if it, I'm not mistaken. It was, it was launching Jackson Pollock. At first, Peggy would show her collection of European artists and all the surrealist artists in exile. But then she understood, also thanks to Samuel Beckett, who always encouraged her to show the art of her time, that she should be supporting young artists. And Jackson Pollock was one of the young American artists that she supported with a stipend and with his first solo exhibitions at Art of His Century. And it was a very exciting time for the young American artists because Art of His Century really was the platform uh, for these uh, young artists, both um, men and women, men in particular, even though Peggy did organize some important and groundbreaking exhibitions devoted to women only, and she did support a few women by giving them solo exhibitions. But by 1947, when the war was over, Peggy really wanted to go back to Europe. And she was invited to show her, her collection at the Venice Biennale in 1948, which was finally reopening uh, after after several years of having been closed because of the because of the world conflict, and the um, collection is shown in the Greek Pavilion, which was. Um, oh. Uh, because there was a civil war in Greece, and so the Greek pavilion was uh, was free, 
And so the, 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 the Greek consul general offered Peggy her, the pavilion, and she was delighted. And uh, it was a great success in, in many ways. I think it was quite shocking as well for uh, much of a public who was maybe used to seeing a more traditional type of work and who wasn't at all aware of what was happening in New York except for the artists. And this was, of course, a great moment for the young Italian artists and the Venetian artists who could at last see what was happening in New York in the 1940s. And these artists would be so influential for young, for young artists in Italy. I think Peggy, the fact that Peggy came to to Italy and came to Venice was a huge breath of fresh air. It also meant hope, it also meant something dynamic, something to look forward to. It really paved the way in many ways for some kind of artistic renewal in, uh, in Italy. So a very exciting moment in post-war Europe and post-war Italy. And um, Peggy in 1949, thanks to a friend, finds this, uh, this rather extraordinary palazzo, an unfinished palazzo from the mid-18th century. Uh, right on the Grand Canal, a bit of an aberration because it looks so modernist in my mind. I agree. Yes, I, think I mean this every time yes. I see it. <laughs> it is. I mean, it was uh, when Peggy uh, purchased it. It had been um, it had been inhabited by two other extraordinary women, and most notably the, the Marchesa Maria Luisa Casati, who was the poet uh-huh. Gabriele D'Annunzio's muse and mistress. And that, he, I didn't know. Yeah, so he lived across the, the canal uh, in the famous little Casa Rossa. And um, uh, Luisa Casati lived here for several years, and apparently she threw the most extravagant parties, and she used to go around naked but with furs over her, and she used to have lands in the garden, which was perfectly apt because this is Palazzo Venier dei Leoni. And so it had quite a history. I mean, it had been abandoned over the years. It was never finished for a variety of reasons. But then, thanks to these extraordinary women, Luisa Casati, then an English Viscountess, then it fell into disrepair and neglect again because of the war. But then, thanks to Peggy, uh, who finds it, or it's found for her, in fact, in 1949, she realizes this is a perfect place for my collection of modern art. As much as she may have been attracted by a more classical palazzo adorned with frescoes, uh, I think what she was really looking for was a simple kind of building, something not too large, but something which would really suit her collection of modern art. I mean, I, th- I think this is absolutely perfect for her what I know of the collection and her personality because it was like she was able to animate it. She was able to animate it, animate it exactly. And it was perfect also from another point of view because of the outdoor space. And Peggy had always loved sculpture. In fact, the first work of art that she acquired for her collection was a small sculpture by Jean Arc. So sculpture always played a, a major role here uh, at Palazzo Venier. So we have this garden where she started to place sculpture and also the, the terrace on the Grand Canal where she famously placed her Marino Marini sculpture, the Angel of a Citadel. And the first exhibition that she organized here was an exhibition of contemporary sculpture. So all this made for something very attractive for Peggy. She had the perfect space, uh, the kind of prototype of a white cube if you like, uh-huh. a gorgeous white cube, uh, which was just perfect for her collection and for several, uh, several, several bedrooms, of course, because she would always have uh, she would always have guests. And in 1951, when her collection 
uh, is finally established and hung and installed in, in her home, she begins to open the collection several times a week to the to the general public because she she strongly believed that the collection was for for not just for herself but it was for for the bigger public for the larger audience and she really believed that everyone was to be able to enjoy what she had been able to acquire over over the years and so she lives from 1949 to 1979 so the last 30 years of her life are spent in this palazzo you know what I what I love is in talking to people when you're in Venice and you talk about Peggy, a lot of people consider her a Veneziana, mm -hmm. which I think is incredible because you know I mean I think sometimes it's hard to become well to become you know it's it's hard to become the culture where you just moved into and she quickly quickly became part of the fabric of Venice. Um, I'd love to know a little bit more about her relationship with the city. Well, I don't think in the beginning it was as easy as that. It's never that easy. No, no. Okay. I, th I think she was shunned by the more bourgeois and uh, aristocratic members of, uh, of Italian society. Uh, I think many people probably thought, who is this American Jewish lady who's coming here with her collection of modern art? Uh, what is she doing in this palazzo, which doesn't have Tieplo frescoes? Uh, very strange, but then slowly I think they warmed up to her and uh, Venetian artists were thrilled to meet her. In fact, that some of the very first people that she met were artists such as Emilio Vedova, Giuseppe Santomaso, and then Edmondo Baci and Tancredi, whom she took under her wing and gave a stipend to, and also she gave him use of, a, of part of a basement for his studio. And uh, because she she continued to believe that it was her duty to protect artists, to help artists whenever she could. And uh, that's what she continued to do. And she did continue to acquire art at the Biennales that she used to attend uh, on a regular basis. And um, so eventually I think she became very much part of Venetian fabric. And eventually, in fact, in 1962, she was made an honorary citizen of Venice and she got all kinds of recognition, formal recognition. Uh, and uh, she was known also as the last Dogaressa, l'ultima Dogaressa of Venice. Uh, also because she had, uh, she was one of the only private people to have uh, to have a gondola in Venice, and so that was also quite a sight seeing Peggy uh, being uh, being being you driven around, being gondoliered around in her private gondola. Does the does the Guggenheim still have her gondola? The Guggenheim unfortunately does not have her gondola, uh, but it's in the Maritime Museum. Peggy ah. donated it to the Maritime Museum, so if you want to go and see the gondola, it is over there. And in fact, it's in a magnificent setting. You know, I was looking at the photo of her with um, one of the, the oars of the gondola, mm -hmm. and I wanted to ask you, because I love how when you come into the Guggenheim from the Gran Canale, there are the two pali that are the two mm -hmm. poles that are striped white yes. and kind of like a turquoise celeste yes. blue. Yes. And then I saw in the picture that it looked like the ore was striped as well. Was it the same colors? Yes, I believe they were the same colors. I think turquoise was one of Peggy's very, very favorite colors. And in fact, when I came here just over three years ago to take over the directorship of the museum, I wanted to have the pali di casada repainted. Uh, as I remembered them, and uh, also based on historical photographs. Mm -hmm. Now let's talk a little bit about about you coming here, because um, the Guggenheim, so the Peggy Guggenheim collection opened to the public in 1980. Is that correct? Um, and for you know, and it's so it, it this marks the 40th year. So we're in its 40th anniversary. Congratulations! But I know that you have your own personal history with this collection. Would you care to share it? 
Of course. So yes, the museum turns 40 this year, uh, let's say officially under the complete aegis of the Guggenheim Foundation. Peggy had in fact given her museum and the collection during her lifetime in the 70s to the Guggenheim Foundation, which oversees the museum here and, and in New York. Um, but yes, memories. Well, yes, I used to come here as a, as a, as a child, as a teenager. Uh, and can, can we let everyone know why? <laughs> yes. Uh, yes, so I used to come uh, to Venice and to the Palazzo as a child um, and um, as a teenager with my parents and my father was uh, uh, Peggy's, uh, Peggy's son, so I am uh, one of her two granddaughters. So Peggy was my paternal, paternal grandmother. So I used to come here on vacation uh, with my parents and sister, or at times even alone. Was was she living here at yes. the time? So oh, what, yes. I, 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 she always lived in the palazzo. Yes. So what was it like when it when she was living here? What what, what are your what, I guess what what's your kind of what would you call it that kind of like overall memory? Um, you know, because like when I go to when I think of my nonna's house, I think of her garden and I think of this blue room that she had and I think of her cooking for me. Mm -hmm. I don't know why. That's what I think of. Yes. Well, one, I think one generally thinks of maybe uh, cooking and all things fuzzy with one's grandmothers. My other grandmother was completely different. This grandmother, my t paternal grandmother, uh, she did cook a bit, but that wasn't really her thing. Uh, I don't remember her ever cooking for me or for my parents. Did you call uh, her Nonna? No, we called her. We had a funny name for her for uh, my sister and I. We called her Grandmother Dogs. To differentiate her from our other grandmother who didn't have dogs, so we called her grandmother dogs. <laughs> Whereas my brothers and my cousins, I believe, called her Peggy, but we called her grandmother, grandmother dogs. dogs. I like dogs. that. <laughs> so yes, coming here was well, was it was a bit out of the ordinary because you knew that it was a special place, that you had to be careful. At the same time, it was also very loose. Uh, incredibly informal uh, but at times uh, I would feel a bit on edge because uh, she wasn't quite the grandmother you might want when you're when you're like a girl a and a teenager the touchy feeler didn't really exist no no uh -huh. my grandmother wasn't really like that either mm. my grandmother mm. was are you talking about your paternal no one? my nonna my actually she she was very um, very fashion like she she was not I used to I used to love my, my one of my high school friends had a grandmother named Bubby who would give us each five dollars and she'd make cookies for us and she would you know like every time you came to our house she did stuff for you uh -huh. my nonna was like let's go shopping and or <laughs> she was like let's go to an art museum right it yes. was not it was a little bit it wasn't quite as touchy-feely, so I think I yes. kind of understand. Yes. Uh -huh. But one of my best memories, in fact, is going with uh, Peggy or with grandmother dogs in her gondola uh, and going around the canals uh, that was really quite special because I think one of the best ways of getting to know Venice is uh, on the water. I mean, Venice is all about the water. And um, so then you can access certain places that you wouldn't normally access if you were on foot. And you can access them just gliding through these small canals and that was rather special. But then what she would do is that at times she would absolutely insist that we stop at a church. And then she would stay in the gondola, but I would have to go inside the church, look and see what was inside. She might give me a coin, I don't know, 50 lira or cento lira, 
to have a bit of light. Um, and she'd say, she would say, make sure you see the carpaccio, make sure you see the, the, the Tintoretto, the Tiziano. And then I'd have to come back and report on what I'd seen. So a kind of informal education. And Peggy's education, in fact, had been very informal. And she loved Renaissance art. Uh, and I think she was particularly fond of, um, uh, of Venetian art and of, uh, of, of Carpaccio uh, in particular. And so that was quite an education. I mean, being able to go around the canals, just looking at the buildings, gliding through the canals, and stepping out onto the campi and going into the churches where more often than not, there was no one at all. It was really pretty dark and damp. Um, but then I would put in my little monetina inside the box and the light literally would appear and something something astonishing would, uh, would, would appear in front of my eyes. Not something that I necessarily always liked, especially being a, a, a very young girl or a teenager. Uh, but those, those are fond memories and memories that, uh, that, that, are, that are important. Were there yeah. any, are there any pieces of art here? Like when, like what was, when, when you were a child or growing up, did you have a favorite piece here? Well, more than favorite piece, I know there were some pieces that I really didn't like and which were terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> but I, my, I, I mean, I always loved the early Cubist works by Picasso and Braque. Um, but some pieces I found really terrifying, which were the surrealist pieces. I was going to say. <laughs> because we used, I mean, a lot of the rooms now, which, I mean, which are galleries, were, were, were bedrooms uh, with these four poster beds. Uh, but, uh, but there were paintings in there, like a Max Ernst or, or a Paul Delvaux. And we have got this magnificent painting by Paul Delvaux, uh, which shows these trunks, tree trunks, but then the... the um, then with the heads and, and, and uh, um, body um, uh, of, a, of, of a woman who's uh, Delvaux's, Delvaux's own wife, uh, but with these huge black eyes covered in mascara and cord, and uh, I felt that they were always peering over me, and they were rather, it was rather difficult to, to, to sleep in a room with these, with these extraordinary looking figures, half woman, half, half tree, peering over you, and it was difficult to get to sleep, and it was even more difficult if you were sleeping in a room with uh, with a Max Ernst painting, uh, which were only all, imagine. Yes, so so <laughs> that wasn't always very 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 relaxing, uh, but yes, some of my favorite works otherwise have generally been I must say yes the the early works by Picasso, much of a sculpture, uh, and then um, uh, I always found it very exciting to see these, these Jackson Pollock paintings because they seemed at the time and when I was when I was very young, they seemed so easy to emulate, and I thought, I can do that. And then, of course, many years later, I realized, well, no, maybe it's not that easy. And uh, my goodness, yes, what an extraordinary painter, and he does deserve to be considered possibly, I mean, the greatest American painter of the a, of a 20th century, certainly one of the seminal ones. That is pretty, that is pretty cool. Those are very great memories. Have you ever tried, out of curiosity, to, to sleep? in the room with the Ernst and the, the Surrealist paintings, just, just to see if you could get through the night now as an adult. No, but maybe I should try. It could be kind of interesting, <laughs> you know, the time sleepover series. Yes, 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 I'll, I'll have to get a sleeping bag and just sneak in at night. Exactly. Yes. Now, actually, let's, let's bring it to, let's, now, this, the museum opens in 1980, and your career instead, I know that you, you were telling me you grew up in France, 
you studied in Florence, um, and you were in New York as well, and now you're here. Which I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Yes, so, um, yes, I grew up in France, uh, finished school in France, university in England, then I came to Florence when I stayed there for many, many years, and I work for an extraordinary co publishing company and documentation center called Centro D, DI. Uh, and then I, uh, then I went to New York and I was there for about 25 years and I was a curator at the Guggenheim Museum. Um, I focus on early 20th century um, European, European art. Uh, I did a lot of work, uh, rather ironically, in, in light of, uh, of my career now and of my family connection. I did a lot of work around the history of the Guggenheim Museum and of its founding director who was a woman artist called Hilary Bay, who uh, was Solomon Guggenheim's uh, advisor and founding director of the Guggenheim Museum when it was known as, as the Museum of Non-Objective Painting. And it is thanks to Hilary Bay, as far as I'm concerned, that the Guggenheim Museum exists today without her, the Guggenheim uh, as we know it today in the collection, I don't think would exist. So it's very interesting that you have these two women, Hilary Bay, New York, and Peggy Guggenheim, who somehow, as far as I'm concerned, formed the pillars of the Guggenheim Foundation. And their collections and their ideas in many ways complement each other. Uh, Rebay uh, was very much influenced by, um, uh, by, uh, by spirituality, uh, she really believed in the spiritual in art and um, in fact the collection is very strong in works by Kandinsky. Uh, and um, she was an artist herself and we know that Peggy wasn't an artist. Uh, Peggy didn't have the same kind of spiritual leanings that, um, that, um, that Ribe had. I think she was a lot more pragmatic. I mean she was very keen on, um, on building a comprehensive collection of modern art thanks to many um, of her enlightened advisors um, such as Marcel Duchamp of course or the, the, the British historian Herbert Reed even though as far as I'm concerned there are a few um, there are few lacuna in the collection uh, but no collection is perfect and that's also why the collection is so is so, so, is so special because even though uh, it does focus ex very successfully on uh, um, on the major strands and um, movements of the of the 20th century. Nonetheless, I think there are a few gaps here and there. You might wonder, well, where are all the women artists? Uh, but that's a big question, and maybe we don't have time to talk about that today. Um, but it is, uh, on the other hand, as I was mentioning earlier, uh, Peggy did support women artists by organizing two major exhibitions devoted to women artists. She supported other artists such as Irene Rice Pereira, who's an American abstract artist uh, who was given a solo show at Art of the Century. And we were very lucky a few years ago um, to, be, um, to be given uh, a work by Irene Rice Pereira, in fact, in honor of, uh, of Philip Rylands, the first director of the PGC. Uh, and uh, I'm very glad, in fact, to say that right now uh, we have on the view a, a, a quite a spectacular work by Grace Hartigan, uh, who was part of that group of women, including Lee Krasner, uh, Elaine de Kooning, uh, uh, Joan, Joan Mitchell, uh, and Helen Frankenthaler. So... Um, and you have a Joan Mitchell in... That is part of a Schulhoff collection. Yes. So that is a separate collection. Okay. So, um, but... We mustn't 
forget that Peggy was also collecting at a certain time when unfortunately many women were not being looked at quite as much as one might have hoped. Uh, even though um, she included the women artists uh, not uh, sporadically, but not so, but not so infrequently. Hilary Bay, if I may, if I may if I may add, was very, very supportive of women artists, also because she was an artist herself, and so I think she understood uh, how difficult it was for women artists. So you were the curator of the Guggenheim in New York for 25 years, and then three years ago you returned to Venice. So when you were just speaking, you were mentioning um, that there was a Grace Hardigan now hanging, and I wanted to ask you about that because, as I mentioned, I worked at the Guggenheim and at the PGC, and I remember certain things in certain places and, and I've come back over the years and certain paintings were in certain places always and now now it's, there's a bit of a change which is like a breath of fresh air it's lovely to see um, and I see that there's a little a, a new curatorial direction thanks to you obviously and I'd love to hear about that yes well as a former curator um, I mean that's still one of my favorite activities so whenever I have the chance I want to move paintings around because I think it's important to find new relationships between the works of art and I think it's also important to be able to show the works of art which are not often on view. You have to get every object it's due. Of course some are uh, very, many of the works vary in quality, uh, visitors want to see certain works uh, but I do think it's important as part of our educational mission to show what else we, we have in the collection, what Peggy was also, what she was collecting for the most part. Um, so whenever we can, we, we move objects around, then we, um, I mean, sometimes, uh, well, like many institutions, we lend works to other exhibitions, so there are a few works which, uh, which, are, which, are, which are traveling, which are not on view. Some of them may be in need of conservation, some may just need to be put away because they can't be exposed to light too often. Right now, uh, unfortunately, because of the COVID situation uh, and because of restricted, um, well, restricted access to the museum, uh, and in order not to have so many people congregate around works of art, we've had to eliminate a few works and just take a few more works off the walls. Okay. Because if not, there are just too many people and we really have to try and maintain the social distancing between people because we have to make sure that everyone feels safe. Uh, in the museum, that is that is important. So I know that. So that I didn't I didn't realize that. So there are a little bit less work on the walls. Um, I mean, there's a lot of really good stuff. <laughs> so, so it's kind of it's kind of funny to say that. Uh -huh. But um, I know that you reopened in June. Yes. And it was just a few days. So one of the yes. things that I, I think um, I, I would love to talk about is just the the educational aspect of the the Guggenheim, the Peggy Guggenheim collection, because um, as I mentioned, I spent the good part of two years here specifically for, um, well, I had this thing, I was writing a piece on Robert Gober, and, uh -huh. and then I, I wanted to work more in contemporary or modern art, and I, I applied, it was great. Um, and I wanted to talk a little bit more about, you know, the resources that you have to academics, the resources that you have to your guests, um, letting, letting people know this isn't because you mentioned this is this is also education. It's not simply just a great art gallery. Mm -hmm. um, there, this is a great resource for anybody who is studying art to come here and whether they do a studentship, a fellowship, an internship, um, and it's a great resource for, I think, you know, people that you know, don't that that just assume you know Venice is a great city. I love the history of Venice. I love all of Venice. I love Saint Tiepolo. I love I love a lot of things about Venice, but it's also really fun to 
to kind of decontextualize Venice and see this contemporary and modern art. Absolutely, that is important. And yes, our mission is uh, educational. That is the mission of the Guggenheim Museum. And I think one of our greatest, uh, well, resources is in fact this internship, which was established 40 years ago. So the internship, uh, the Guggenheim internship at the Peggy Guggenheim Collection turns 40 years old this year as well. Oh, goody! <laughs> we, we didn't think we were going to be celebrating like this. So, uh, but we have to celebrate nonetheless. And so, I mean, so many students and interns have come through the Peggy Guggenheim Collection. And I think it's a remarkable... Uh, program, uh, which unfortunately during lockdown was uh, was cut back drastically. I mean, we didn't have students; we just had a couple of students who were here um, to somehow oversee and to help out. And then we had some who weren't then able to go home so easily. But then we um, we work with them nonetheless remotely, and they helped us to produce podcasts and videos so that we continue to offer activities online to our, to our audience because we thought that was very important. We can't lose touch with our public. They can't come here, so we have to offer them something online. So we developed a whole program of digital activities. Um, and we also launched our new web website in April, and I think we were very excited and proud about that. Uh, otherwise, yes, I mean, we have a library which uh, our students and interns can use and then by special appointment you can also come uh, to the library if you need to do uh, any, 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 any research, yes. Uh -huh. You know, I, to let everybody know, the interns, it's, it's a pretty, um, I would say, 360 internship in this sense here. You're, you're, when, I, when I was here, and I'm, I'm sure it's the same, there was... I, I, as I mentioned, I cleaned the sculpture yes. fondly in the front, very delicately. I know how to clean a sculpture by Martin. I'm very proud of that fact. Um, we, you know, you, you're you're cleaning the space, which is important, very, very important. I think you're cleaning the artwork. Not, you're not cleaning the paintings. No, <laughs> yeah, but no. you're cleaning the the exterior spaces. Um, we were. I was part of a whole. I, as I mentioned, the Mirandi show that they had many, many years ago, hanging it, which was an incredible experience for me in the sense that I assisted the preps. That came in, and so I learned the aspect of the 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 pre behind the scenes of putting mm -hmm. together a show mm -hmm. on a more uh, hands-on, right. which I thought was really fascinating. Mm -hmm. And then there's publication. You mm -hmm. you have interns that are doing. Uh, digital and social media. I mean, I think it's it's a really 360 internship. It is, and I think that's its strength because you do you really do put uh, you do you do a bit of everything. I mean, you do also have to uh, guard the galleries a bit. Unfortunately, exactly. the interns right now they can't do they can't give tours. Uh, because of our restrictions, but hopefully at some point we'll be able to resume those. But I think that's why um, students enjoy this internship so much and why it's so important, because you really get to live the life of the museum on a daily basis. So you get to understand somewhat how to run a museum and how things work. I think you mm -hmm. understand it completely hands-on. Mm -hmm. And as I, you know, I came back and I said, I'm, I'm going to see some old friends, because when you do guard paintings or guard a gallery, the paintings that are there really, really become part of your life. They mm -hmm. become your family. Um, I, I, at least it happened to me. And so when, when you're when you're living in gallery 24/7, or and, and the logistics of it, it's it's a beautiful experience coming back. Yes. yes. Um, I'd love to know what we see for the future for PG, PGC. 
Well, uh, I want the PGC to become stronger and stronger. Obviously, I want to be able to resume our full exhibition program. We've had to, uh, unfortunately, cut back uh, on our programming uh, because, uh, because of expenses, uh, which is very sad. Um, so right now, just one major exhibition a year. Uh, I'm very keen on conservation, and I think that's something also crucial for Venice because Venice is such a... Um, a delicate reality um, and we really have to take care of the whole city and so I really want to take care, I need to take care uh, of the building uh, of, the, of the collection in the best possible way and so I'm thinking of new ways of, be, of conservation, conservation labs of, uh, because what with um, climate change, water rising, etc., etc., you can never be too careful. So conservation is absolutely crucial. Uh, it's also a fascinating science. Um, I think that um, we should all be more and more interested and curious about conservation and how to preserve your heritage. And so my, 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 my main objective right now is really to take care of this extraordinary heritage and to ensure that it will be here for the next 100,000, 2,000 years if possible. Well, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> I'm looking forward to telling my grandchildren to come to visit. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, Thank Carol. you very really much. A- hey, listeners. Thanks again for joining me in Venice at the Peggy Guggenheim Collection. You know, you can visit the museum at www.guggenheim-venice.it and on Instagram at Guggenheim underscore Venice. And you can help support it. And with that, I'll leave you with a few words from Carol Val. So a few months ago, we did launch a fundraising campaign because, uh, well, for three months, we were completely closed. Uh, and we lost a lot of revenue because we rely so much on our ticket entrances, on sales from the, from the shops and also, our, uh, and also events. Um, and then even though we did reopen in June, we've only been re- opening a few days at a time. And so um, that means a loss of revenue. And we have many more expenses because we need so many more guards, security guards. Uh, in order to protect everyone. So we've had to launch a fundraising campaign and so I would just like to appeal to everyone who loves the PGC to help us. Every amount uh, is, 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 is most welcome. Uh, just like uh, what uh, Barack Obama did. Uh, he appealed to everyone, even by giving a dollar, five dollars. Everything can work and then you can somehow feel uh, that you're really participating in the life of this museum. So if everyone can contribute, whatever amount they they feel they can do i would be eternally grateful how can we find where to contribute how do we do that so you can go to our website and it's very easy and just in three clicks uh, you can you can donate to the peggy guggenheim collection so it's very easy we've made sure to 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 simplify the whole process okay well thanks for sharing that with us and i hope everybody takes a chance to look at the new website and do those three clicks. Thank you so much, that's great. Okay. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Ciao Bella. If you'd like to know more about today's guest, please visit ciaobella.co and click on the podcast link or go directly to ciaobella.co backslash podcast. Want more Italy? You can find all my episodes on iTunes and Spotify and Stitcher. When you have time, subscribe to iTunes and rate the podcast. What are you waiting for? And if you want to be part of the podcast, email me or DM me your Italy questions.
To learn more about me and my work, go to my website, ericafirpo.com, and follow my Italy adventures on Instagram at ericafirpo. Ciao, bella! And a very big thank you and hug to Massimiliano Yonta and Disc to Disc Studios, the producers of Ciao Bella who continue to make me sound and feel great. 